Colossians chapter 2, verses 8 through 15 is our focus. We're going to be reading verses 6 through 15, and if uh, you come to Connect Group, you were in verses 4 through 15. I cannot stress strongly enough that encourage you strongly enough to be a part of a connect group because I'm going to focus maybe not differently but at least on a different part this morning of this passage and you may have you may be reading along with us during the week uh, with our, our our readings so you're familiar with it but the I'm going to assume some things this morning because the 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 section is 4 through 15. Well, I'm going to assume what it talks about in verses 4 and 5 and start in verse 6 and even very briefly cover 6 and 7 and really focus on verse 8. So I, I, I strongly, strongly, strongly encourage you to be a part of our Connect groups on Sunday mornings. Uh, the, the donuts are hot when they get here at around 9 o'clock. So if you get here for Connect Group, you get hot donuts. The coffee's hot the whole time, but the, the donuts are hot, if that helps encourage you. Small celebrations. As you can see, not much happened around the church this week. Um, uh, that, that's not true. Uh, if you're not on Facebook, then you may not have seen the picture. Get somebody to show you of the new stained glass. It is installed, uh, finally. You can, uh, you can see it from the backside, of course. There, there's some plywood up above it. They haven't finished everything about it, but the stained glass itself is in, and it is absolutely beautiful. Um, and there have been, a, it seems like, a thousand little things going on the last two weeks. So, uh, and that's just going to continue over the next few weeks. And we're still fingers crossing. By the end of November, everything will be done. We'll, we'll see uh, no, I'm not superstitious. I don't think fingers crossing does any. You know what I mean. Uh, if I have to add that disclaimer. But some other small celebrations. And I'm finding that our small celebrations each week aren't that small. Uh, the, but, but that's the kingdom, isn't it? There are no small celebrations in the kingdom. Anytime God is doing something, it's a big deal. So we still call them small celebrations, that, but, but they're not. Um, they're big, they're important. Seven of our nine leader treks weeks, if you don't remember what leader treks was, the, the youth groups that came during the summer to do hurricane recovery this past summer, they're coming back again next summer. And if I'm, my counting was correct, they have nine weeks scheduled where they'll, where they'll be with us at the church and be working around Calcasieu Parish. Seven of those weeks are already filled. It's not even November yet, and those weeks are already filled, so I anticipate the last two weeks, the latest in the summer, the hottest part of the year for us, will eventually fill up, but they may take a little longer. The great news here is that, if you remember Olivia, she has moved up in administration is the best way I can explain it. Does that sound right, Amy and Tom? She's no longer part of the teams that go out. She's moved up to level, and she's organizing. But she will very likely come and visit during the summer, and we'll get to see her again. But the, the beauty of her moving to that level is now she's a decision maker. And she is intimately aware of what our area needs and how things work. They were, they were brand new to it last year. Well, now they have somebody who is here doing the organization, so she is, uh, there's a word here, manipulating is not the word I want, that sounds bad. Orchestrating, yeah. Um, she, she knows of other avenues and better avenues and, and, and she's more aware of specific needs and can prepare to meet specific needs rather than come down and say, all right, show us some stuff to do. So that's, that's a, a, a huge, small celebration. And I got permission to share this. Um, Hannah Bruce has filled out her journeyman paperwork, or is in the process of filling out her journeyman paperwork. A journeyman is a two-year missionary with the International Mission Board, and you do that right after you graduate from college. So she is filling out that paperwork 
hope not as we speak, she should be at church, um, but in that process, and we will have the joy of being a part of that as her sending church. Uh, her home church will be her, her sending church. So there will be some responsibilities on our part. Uh, I hope, well, we're going to do it anyway, no matter what the IMB asks for. We're going we to have a business meeting, and we're going to vote as a church to send her to wherever it is the IMB chooses to send her. So that's just some stuff that's going on this week that behind the scenes that we want to celebrate and share with you and show you how God continue to work in the life of our church. Colossians verses, uh, chapter 2, verses 6 through 15. I've got to make sure I've got the right notes up here because I've got the wrong title at the top. Yes, this is right. Okay, good. Christ as Lord. We see that phrase in, uh, in verse 6. Christ Jesus as Lord. We'll get to reading that here in just a second. But let me remind you what Paul is, is doing in Colossians. He is uh, he's encouraging the church, which he always did in a, a, almost always did in a friendly, loving, pastoral, fatherly way, Galatians being the exception. And, and Galatians was still loving and fatherly and pastoral, but it just wasn't quite as friendly. That's the only one where he was little little short and and you dads in the room you understand sometimes you talk to your children and it's very y'all you're doing a great job and i appreciate it let's do this and sometimes okay look we have talked about this now well that's galatians that's not colossians colossians is the y'all y'all are doing a great job you i'm proud of you I'm, i'm hearing wonderful things about you i've got some concerns and they were big concerns. It, they were heretical concerns. And, and he's attacking the heresy. And in verses 8 through 15, Paul is extremely specific. As a matter of fact, verses 8 through 15 of chapter 2 are what scholars use to try to understand the heresy that he was addressing in the church. Because it's the most specific and it's the, uh, the clearest attack on the heresy. The problem is, at least for us 2,000 years later, is that Paul does not describe the heresy. That, that's, this is something important to notice as we read. Paul doesn't tell the people, so I understand you're doing this, and you're doing this because so-and-so said it this way, and, and let me tell you why what he said is, is not exactly right. So he said all these things, right? But, but, and, and, and these four or five things, they sound good, but let, they're, just, they're just a little off. You notice, you notice when he said this instead of that. You see how that... He, Paul does not do any of that. And, and that's the way we tend to want to um, defend the faith. Let me tell you all the various minute ways what you say is wrong. And, and there are times to do that. Uh, I, I don't deny that. There are great times for discussion and, and sitting down over coffee and, and hashing out some things and, and chasing rabbits for hours if that's what you want to do. Paul does not spend the time doing that. Not going to spend the paper and the ink and the effort to do all, to chase down all the minutiae of the heretic's argument. Instead, he simply, beautifully presents the opposite of the heresy, Christ. You get hints of what he was combating because, what, because of what he said of Jesus. But he doesn't worry about what he's combating. He understands that if the people know Christ that bad and or heretical teaching will hold no sway over their lives. If I can get you to know the truth, I don't have to really worry about explaining the falsehoods to you. You'll recognize the falsehoods when they pop up. Because you'll already have the truth. You'll already have been discipled. Church, this is what our job is. This is what my job is to you. This is what your connect group teachers is to the connect group classes. This is what your D group facilitators are to your D groups. It's what 
children's ministers and youth ministers are to their groups. That is the responsibility of every believer who's been a believer for five days has to the, it's what every believer who has been a believer for five days has to the believer who's only been a believer for three days. If you've been a believer longer than somebody else and spent more time in God's Word, it's your responsibility to disciple them with the truth. And if they know the truth, well, then the truth does what to them? Sets them free. Sets them free from the fear of falsehood and heresy and stumbling and being drawn back and all these phrases that Paul will use in his letters. So Paul, in verses 8 through 15, presents Christ as Lord. But let's start in verse 6. Chapter 2, verse 6. Paul says, So then, just as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in Him, being rooted and, and built up in Him and established in the faith, just as you were taught and overflowing with gratitude. Be careful that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit based on human tradition, based on the elements of the world, rather than Christ. For the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ, and you have been filled by Him, who is the head over every ruler and authority. You were also circumcised in Him with a circumcision not done with hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, a body of flesh in the circumcision of Christ, when you were buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. And when you were dead in trespasses, and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him and forgave us all our trespasses. He erased the certificate of debt the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us and he has taken it away by nailing it to the cross he disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly he triumphed over them in him paul begins in verse 6 by telling us that that we have received christ as lord lord that, that's master, that's the one in charge, that's the, 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 the big kahuna, that's the high potentate. It's, it's the every, it, it, that's the one. So when we accept Christ as Savior, we are thankful, gloriously saved from our sin, but we don't just get the sin-saving thing and get to say, but thanks, and move on down the road. We accept Him as Lord as well. If He will save us, then He says, but your obligation then is to me. I am the Lord. I am the one in, in charge. Jesus is most important. Christ is most important. Christ is in charge. Christ is in control. I left a word out there. And I was trying to think of the difference between being in charge and being in control. Well, Jesus is both. But we tend to want to be in charge or we tend to want to let Jesus be in charge, but we'll still be in control. Now, how do you do that? What does that look like? Well, when it comes to the, the contracting firm of Paul Davis Incorporated, when it comes to the work being done on the church, when it, 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 and, and decisions that have to be made spur of the moment along the week, there are two people that 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 conversation occurs between. Daniel, who is the project manager, and me. We talk about it. Now, I am the one in charge. In those conversations, in those moments, I'm the one in charge. Daniel is the one in control. What's the difference? Well, I can make all the decisions I want to. But there's not a single subcontractor, painter, drywall, carpet, electrical, plumber, roofer, any of those. There's not a single one of those that looks to me to get the marching order. That looks to me to decide what they are going to do next or not going to do. I'm in charge. I'm making the decisions. 
Daniel's in control. So who really has the authority there? Well, really, Daniel. I can yell, scream, and throw things, but it's not going to do anything if Daniel doesn't tell his subcontractors, do this, do this, do this, because he's the one writing their checks. That's all they care about. That's who is in control. So we come to Jesus and say, sure, Jesus, you're my Savior. You're in charge of my life. But I'm in control. Jesus says, these are the decisions. You have my word. You, you've read it. And we say, you're right, and it's a good word. I like your word, but I'm making the decision on what to do about it. And Paul tells us here that Jesus is both in charge and in control as Lord. And we will know his lordship over all things by knowing him. Paul, uh, the, the two imperatives in our passage this morning, verse 6, the first imperative is continue to live in the things you were taught about Jesus. Paul knows that what Epaphras taught the church in Colossae were the right things. And he says, continue to live in them. Do this regularly. And then he says uh, in verse 7 that uh, continue to live in them being, and then he has all these ing verbs or ed verbs, these participles, being rooted, built up, established, taught is thrown in there, and overflowing. Rooted, built up, established, and taught are passive verbs, which means they are something that are happening to them. Church in Colossae, church in Sulphur, continue to live in what you have been taught and let what you have been taught, the teachings of Christ, His Word, His sacred holy Word, Allow it, let it root you and build you up and establish you in the faith and teach you. What you've already been taught, let it continue to teach you. And then this next paragraph, verses 8 through 15, is this beautiful image of what that means to be under the Lordship of Christ. What that means to continue to live under the teaching you were taught to be continually rooted and continually built up and continually established in that truth and to overflow in gratitude because of that truth. And so he begins, verse 8, with be careful, the next imperative, upon which the entire paragraph hinges. Be careful. Take what Scripture teaches and compare it to what the world teaches. When the world says something, you should know what Christ has said already so that you know, nope, that's wrong. Because I know what Christ has said. And the world comes at you with a new philosophy, a new standard, a new ideology, and you may be able to say, yep, I see, some, I see a little truth here, I, I see a little truth there, but, but otherwise, no. Christ has said, so it doesn't matter what you have said. Christ has said, and I am rooted, and I'm being built up, and I am established in what He has already told us. And we have, I believe, 12 ING words that we're going to look at this morning that are part of this passage. A part of Christ as Lord. It begins with Christ as Lord in understanding in verse 8. Be careful that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit based on human tradition, based on the elements of the world rather than Christ. He is saying here, Christ as Lord is, is the beginning of understanding. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. The passive verb in verse 7 of being taught says that someone is teaching me. There is an understanding that I am getting from Christ. The passive verbs, all of them in verse 7, show Christ as Lord over our knowledge. Jump back to verse 3, which in, in my Connect group, Etta covered very well and reminded us. Verse 3 says, In Him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. How much is all? 
All. Okay, good. See, we got that. All right, so if all knowledge and all wisdom and knowledge is in Christ, then where does my understanding come from? Christ. If I cannot understand anything without Him, then all of my understanding comes from Him. Right? It's simple. <laughs> Except it's not easy. Simple don't always mean easy. Those verbs show us that Christ is Lord over our knowledge. And that we have to be careful though. There will be a tendency. We have the opportunity to chase other avenues of knowledge to chase other avenues of understanding and there will be those whom we love whom we trust that will attempt to take us captive through these philosophies and empty deceit based on human tradition based on sometimes the way things have always been done sometimes based on the way th people have always thought sometimes based on Good things that have always been done, bad things that have always been done. But is the tradition of humans to build on tradition? Paul uses some uh, language here just in the previous verses when he says, verse 6, So then, just as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live. The tradition isn't always bad, but don't worship the tradition. Don't be bound by the tradition. And miss where Christ has, has redeemed you from it. In particular, this is talking about the teachings in, the, uh, in, in, in Jewish literature like the Mishnah and some other books, the, the teachers. They could trace the teaching of the law from Moses all the way up to the day of Jesus through A.D. 70, after the days of Jesus. This teacher passed it down to this teacher, passed it down to this teacher, and tradition, and tradition, and tradition, and tradition. And then when Jesus comes along, he gathers them on the side of a hill in the Sermon on the Mount and says, you've heard it said, but I say to you, I'm telling you this, even though you've been taught that. This is your tradition. I'm telling you, you are worshiping your tradition. Jesus, Christ is Lord over our knowledge. Number two, dwelling. He says, for the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ. We talked about this uh, a great deal when we looked at verses 15 through 20 of chapter 1. So we won't spend as much time here on it today as we could. But that dwelling, the full presence of God shows Christ as Lord over all things. Let's remember back to Genesis 1 and its relationship to John 1 and its relationship to Colossians 1 and how we connected those dots to the fact that Jesus is Creator along with God, along with Holy, the Holy Spirit. And we get into all the, the, the various truths of the Trinity well, if He created everything, if God created everything, then God is Lord over everything He created. Makes sense. Well, if Jesus created everything, which John 1 and Colossians 1 tell us He did when it talks about the Logos and references us back to Genesis 1, then Jesus is Lord over all things. So if God dwells fully in Jesus we can fully believe that Jesus is fully in charge of all things, including our lives, including our futures, including our eternity, including our tomorrow, including our today. The fullness of God shows Christ as Lord over all things, Him dwelling bodily in Christ. Number three, we see the filling. Paul continues, Jesus is full of God and you are full of Jesus as believers. You have been filled. We, we see this filling in verse 10. The filling of believers shows Christ as Lord over the entire life of the believer. At what point do you as a believer get to empty out Jesus so you then can then go and be in control even though you know Jesus is in charge. Remember the difference? Remember the distinction? Sure, you're the boss, but I'm going to do what I want to. I'm sure none of y'all ever did that at work when, when you're an employee. They're in charge, but I'm in control. 
We do it with Jesus. We, we, we want to uh, unfill ourselves sometimes to get away from Him so we can do what we want. And Scripture, Paul tells us, no, you are filled. And just as the filling of God in Christ shows that He is Lord over all things, the filling of you with Christ, did, did, did that make us gods? Did, that, did we suddenly become a part of the Trinity when Christ fills us? No. Then that means we are His. He is ours. He is our salvation. He is our hope. He is our peace. He is our joy. He is all these things for us. But, but we belong to Him. The filling of believers show Christ as Lord over our entire lives. Number four, we see Christ as Lord ruling. Verse 10, you have been filled by Him who is head over every ruler and authority. Over every ruler and authority. And we've talked about this phrase, ruler and authority, before. It, when Paul uses it, oftentimes it's referring to uh, the, the demonic realm, the angelic realm, the spiritual realm in general. Sometimes he is talking about very literal rulers and authorities on earth. It, the tendency is that there's just an overlap that we can assume both at any time. But context sometimes gives us a little clue as to what he's talking about specifically. And in this case, we look at uh, the, the, you have to look outside of Scripture a little bit to get the context. The context. I talked about this last week where they were looking, the, 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 the heresy that was being taught was looking for somebody else besides just Jesus to be the mediator between them and God. A higher knowledge. Something beyond what Paul had taught. Something beyond what Epaphras had taught. Oh, we're, we're even more spiritual than that, Paul. We're more spiritual than Jesus. We commune with this hierarchy of angels to get close to God. Aren't we smart? Aren't we deep? Aren't we spiritual? And he says, no, you're heretics. Jesus is all that we need. He is head over those rulers and authorities that you think can somehow mediate you to God. But we never miss in the context of Roman occupation, Roman control, Roman oppression of Christianity as he sits very likely in a, uh, under house arrest by the Romans. We never get away from the fact that he is constantly, uh, he constantly has in mind the rulers and authorities on earth as well. They have no power over you either. They have no power to come against you. They had no power to come against me, he said. I, I wasn't taken. I gave myself. I presented myself. I am a sacrifice. It didn't surprise him. He came for that very reason. He had authority over the Jewish court that, that convicted him. He had authority over the mob that came to arrest him. He had authority over Herod who mocked him, and Pilate who questioned him. And he had authority over the, the soldiers that put the nails in his hands and feet, the ones that whipped him, the ones that stabbed him in his side. He had authority over the people that wrapped him up and put him in the tomb. And he had authority over the stone that was rolled in front of his grave because three days later, he kicked that sucker out of the way and he showed his authority. That is a ruling Lord. He rules as Christ. Christ as Lord rules over those who would come against Him. Number five, removing. In His ruling, verse 11, He says, You were also circumcised in Him. So now, He's, he's God in the flesh. He's fullness of God. He's ruler over everything. We're, we're, we're coming down. And He's ruler over the heavenly authorities. And He is ruler over... Uh, he's in charge of earthly authorities. And now He says, And I am in charge over you. Verse 11, you are also circumcised in him with a circumcision not done with hands, not physical, but by putting off the body of flesh, by becoming, by depending on the Holy Spirit that is in you in the circumcision of Christ. 
the removal of our fleshliness. And by fleshliness, I mean sinfulness. That that wars against us. My flesh wars against my spirit. My spirit has been redeemed. My flesh has not yet. So he removed the fleshliness and in doing so shows Christ as Lord over our sin nature. We no longer have to sin. We choose to. Our flesh pulls us that way. And we will sadly forever choose to, at least until we die. But we were given authority. We were given freedom over it. Christ removed that. Removed our fleshliness so that we get to defeat our sin nature. He's given us the power. No temptation has befallen you, but that a way out has been provided. The temptation is not the sin. The sin is the following through with the temptation. That has been removed. Versus, it, we continue, we see Christ as Lord in our living. The end of, uh, I'm sorry, verse 12. When you were buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. And when you were dead in trespasses and, the, and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him and forgave us all of our trespasses. He made you alive. Our baptism is a symbol of what happens spiritually. When I baptize someone, you, I've been here long enough and done it enough that you might even be able to say it with me. I ask, have you, so-and-so, have you trusted Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? Yes. Then upon your profession of faith, I baptize you now, my sister or brother, in the name of the Father and of the, and the Son and the Holy Spirit, buried with Him in death and raised to walk in the newness of life. We leave the old flesh in the water. We bury the flesh and we come up new. The water didn't do it. Our salvation did it. Our faith did it. But we symbolize what happened that moment we believed. When we believed, our flesh was left behind. Our fleshliness was left behind. And we are now a new creature, a new life, a new person. Behold, all things have been made new. You are new in Christ. The raising to life of the new believer shows Christ as Lord over death. Raised to walk in the newness of life. He who believes in me will never die. Does it say sin? Mm -mm. Never die. This body? I'm going to croak one day. It won't be my gallbladder that kills me. I ain't got one. Be something else. But it won't be that. And I will be more alive than I've ever been. Because I have been given life. Death has no fear, has no hold, has no sting. Death is my opportunity. Death is but a door. And when Christ raised us to life, He showed that He had power over that death. Next, forgiving. Verse 13. That's not right. I think it's still in verse 12. No, it's verse 13. I'm right. And forgave us all of our trespasses. Forgiveness. So not only has He given, pow given, us, powerful, uh, given us power over our sinfulness, He has defeated our sin. It's our sin that kills us. It's our sin that separates us from God. It is our sin that divides us one from another. And the forgiveness of all our trespasses means that, uh, that, that we receive shows Christ as Lord over our sin. In the last days, whether you believe it literally or symbolically really doesn't matter, Revelation tells us that sin will be thrown into the lake of fire. Death, Hades, the dragon, it will all be done away with. Sin will be gone. And we see Christ's victory over that 
because Christ as Lord has uh, lordship over sin. This, this means that when we fail in our rejection of temptation, that Jesus has not suddenly lost his power because we sinned. Well, now what do I do? Jesus, I, I've, I've dethroned Jesus. It's a pretty ridiculous statement on its face. Because he has power over that sin as well. That sin has no power in my life. I'm forgiven. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Where does the condemnation come from? Our sin. It doesn't mean I am sinless. It means my sin has no power over me because Christ has power over my sin. Verse 14. He erased their certificate of debt with its obligations. That it was against us and opposed to us. Erasing. One of the actions of Christ as Lord. The removal of our sin debt shows Christ as Lord over the accuser. What was a certificate of debt? What, what is your certificate of debt? Is it your house note that comes every month? Is it your car note? Is it some credit card bills? Most of us have some sort of certificate of debt. And what does that mean? Well, Proverbs says that the borrower is slave to the lender. That certificate of debt that you get every month says they are accusing me. They are accusing me of borrowing money from them and up to this point have not repaid it. I may have been meeting my obligations, but I am still indebted to them. I still owe them something. Well, our lives, our sinfulness, in a sense, and this is the ransom terminology that is used for Jesus, we in some sense had a debt of debt a certificate of debt to sin, to Satan, to our sinfulness, to our lostness. Particularly, Satan kept bringing that piece of paper and saying, well, it looks like you, you committed a couple of sins this week. You know what you owe now, don't you? Your life. Now, you've read Scripture, right? Satan knows Scripture. Don't, don't ever think he doesn't. You know Scripture, right? Well, it says if you sin, you're going to die. That sin separates you from God. I know that. You know that. And here's your, here's your certificate of debt right here. You owe death right there. And what this Scripture says is that when we accept Christ, Christ took that debt and said, you know what? I'm, I'm going to put this right up here, right underneath my hand on the cross. Your, your certificate of debt, that's under this one. Y'all's, I'm going to put this one under my feet. It says he nailed the certificate of debt to the cross. So when the accuser comes and says, they owed a debt, Jesus is like, I don't see no debt. Oh, 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 here's the receipts, buddy. Here, here's where the debt got paid. We, we nailed the certificate to the cross. So you, don't, you don't get to bring that back. Here, here's where, I don't know if you've ever uh, gotten in trouble with a credit card company and, you know, gotten a little behind or maybe a lot behind and then you had to do some creative way to get out of it. What they do at the end is sometimes it all gets charged off, sometimes they make you pay a part of it. So any, All of these things are, are possible, but whatever happens at the end, you want to keep whatever piece of paper it is that says you don't owe anything anymore. Jesus' hands say we don't owe anything anymore. That certificate of debt, the power of the accuser has been removed because Christ is Lord over him. Number nine, we see the nailing. And here, I just talked about it. But there's more to it. Verse 14, he says, in, by, it has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. Well, when he nailed it to the cross, it's done with. Not only does, can the accuser not come back and say you owe, but I don't want to get too personal with you, so you don't have to raise your hands, but how many times have you, some of you been out of debt and gotten back into debt? 
And then it's just new companies. And, and maybe, you know, who knows what your cycle through that is. And, and maybe it's just repeated stupidity on your part. Maybe it's just bad uh, timing. Whatever the case, now you're back in it again. There's a new certificate. There's a new... When, when Jesus nailed that certificate, it, it, it can't be ripped off. There's, there's no relapse in our debt. The crucifixion of our sin debt shows Christ as Lord over the relapse. We, we might use the word backsliding. We as believers have the ability to move forward in our sanctification. We also have the ability to move backward. But the cross says forward is always available. Sanctification is always a possibility. Renewal is always a, a, uh, a, a possibility, a goal. Christ is always there to restore us and to say, you don't have to go backwards. You can only go forwards. And then we move into the last three, that all reference these authorities, these enemies. Disarming. Verse 15, he says, He disarmed the rulers and authorities. The confiscation of our enemies' weapons shows Christ as Lord over our weaknesses. The enemy knows your weakness. He, will, he knows where you are most likely to fail. There are places where Satan and his minions will never mess with you. You may be so tight with your money that debt was never an issue, that not paying your bills was never a problem because you got the first dime you ever made. And that's wonderful. So, so Satan doesn't come after you with money, but boy, your mouth sure does run. And so he comes after you with gossip. Or he comes after your lustful thoughts. Or whatever it is. You've got your areas. And Satan knows and Christ knows. And when he is disarming those rulers and authorities, when he is disarming those powers, he is taking away their ability to drag you back into those sins that so easily ensnare you. That's why Hebrews tells us to kick them off. Remove those things that so easily ensnare us and keep us from running the race. Jesus Christ as Lord has removed, the, disarmed the enemy from being able to move us, uh, to cause us, uh, to keep us, rather, from moving forward in our sanctification. We see Jesus disgracing in verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. Publicly. The cross was a public disgrace for Christ. The tomb was a public, the, the empty tomb rather, was a public disgrace for Satan. Satan thought he had them. All hell cheered on that Friday afternoon. And all heaven rejoiced that Sunday morning. Hell cried that day. They had lost. They knew it was over. Satan was humiliated, and the humiliation of our enemies shows Christ as Lord over our reputations. Over our reputations. Christ is, uh, rather, uh, Satan is humiliated, so we don't have to be. That means we don't even have to be ashamed of our failings. Because Christ is Lord over my sin. Christ is Lord over my sinfulness. I am Christ's. I am all Christ's. I am filled with Christ. And yes, I will fail. Yes, I will sin. And I do not have to be ashamed. I ain't going to brag about it. I'm not talking about that. I'm saying I don't have to be ashamed before God about my sin. Because the humili humiliation is already taken care of. Christ will not humiliate me or you joint heirs with Christ. We have an eternity with Him. We are, we are seated. We are done. We have salvation. 
our enemies are disgraced, we will never know disgrace. Condemnation. And then lastly, he disgraced them publicly and he triumphed over them in him or in himself. The victory over our enemies shows Christ as Lord over our eternity. He, uh, he disarmed them. He disgraced them. He triumphed over them. He had victory. And if He's in us, and He is Lord over us, then that means we have victory in Him. And I had a great... Oh, no, I got it right here. I thought I was supposed to pull, bring the book, but I made a copy. One theologian put it this way. And he's talking about the entire first two chapters of Colossians up to the point where we are. He said, against the implied denial of the biblical doctrine of creation, what Colossians 1 talks about, John 1, Genesis 1, Paul has already insisted that the universe was brought into being in, through, and for Christ. Against the enticing offer of a higher wisdom, he has emphasized that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are accessible in Christ. Against the belief in an indefinite series of intermediaries between God and our world, the heresy that was being taught, he sets forth Christ as the personal embodiment of the fullness of deity. Against the idea that these intermediaries should receive some uh, bit of homage from those who have, uh, who have to approach God through them, he affirms that they have all been conquered by Christ and can no longer claim the allegiance of those whom Christ has redeemed. The whole body of teaching which the Colossian Christians were being urged to accept was a refurbishing of old patterns of thought and life which Christ had rendered obsolete. It should receive no countenance from men and women who had died with Christ and risen with Him to newness of life. We have victory in Christ. And the way to God. Who is the way? The truth and the life? The way to God is controlled by Christ and no one else. No intermediary needed. No higher wisdom. No special knowledge. Just you and simple faith. And you can come to Christ as Lord today by admitting that you're a sinner, by understanding that you, along with everybody else and their mama, have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every one of us. And those wages of sin, what Satan thought he had guaranteed and the certificate of debt that he brings and shoves in your face sometimes and says, see, your sin's going to make you die. That is correct. But Jesus is that gift of God that we get that brings us eternal life. God proves His own love for us by dying on the cross for us while we were still sinners. We were dead, but He can make us alive if we confess with our mouths, Jesus is Lord, and believe in our hearts that God has raised Him from the dead. We will be saved. We will have Christ as Lord. Christ already is Lord. Will you receive Him as Lord today? Let's pray. Father, we thank You that in Your wisdom and in, and in just in however the Trinity works, you and Jesus aren't the same, but you are both God. 
all the fullness of the Godhead dwelt in Christ. He is the Lord of it all. And when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and that no man comes to the Father except by me, then that, that means that that's the final answer. That's the decision that must be made. Will we trust Christ as Savior and Lord? Father, I pray first for the believers here who have trusted Jesus as Savior, and, and they, they put the words and Lord into their statement of faith, and yet... They want you, Jesus, to be in charge and not in control. I often want you to be in charge, but not in control. God, convict us. Where we have wrested control, tried to unfill ourselves while we go about our merry way, and may we always have you as Lord. And may those who aren't believers, have never trusted Jesus Christ, understand the beautiful salvation that can be experienced through Christ, the forgiveness of sins, the removal of the certificate of debt, and yet also the beauty that is lordship, that we don't have to be in control anymore. We don't have to try. We have the God of the universe on our side, fighting our battles, defeating our enemies, disarming them, and showing us the victory that we have, not only over sinfulness and sin, but over death and into eternity. Because of our simple faith in Christ. A simple but not easy act with results that are anything but simple. God, move in hearts this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So what is your decision today? Do you need to accept Christ as Lord and Savior? Do you need to follow in believers' baptism because you've made a decision in the past? Do you need to commit to Christ as Lord? You've committed to Him as Savior and you've given lip service to His Lordship, but you, need, you know there are areas of your life that you do not have Him as Lord. What is your decision today? Tom is at our Connection Center. We've got some men in the back, Lee, Justin, Kirk, that would love to talk to you about how you can accept Christ, would pray with them, whatever you need this morning. They are there for you. But this morning, don't leave this place without Christ as Lord. Let's stand, let's sing, and worship Him this morning.